The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. The book is about the uh, Sichuan earthquake. Some of you still probably can remember that earthquake. So today I'm going to give you a snapshot of the book. You're supposed to read the book, and probably you can get my ugly autograph, you know, that kind of thing. But it's, um, so let me just give you a little bit background of the, uh, the book. So the Sichuan earthquake happened in 20, 2008, on May 12th, uh, so it's called May 12th earthquake as well. And usually after, uh, named after the um, epicenter town called uh, Wenchuan, which is county, um, but it, it hit the area, the transition area between the Chengdu plains to the Tibetan plateau an area which is very prone to all kinds of disasters, particularly earthquakes and mudslides. So um, it was one of the major disasters in the history of the People's Republic. It was the second, the third deadliest earth, um, disaster in the history of the People's Republic after the um, uh, Great Leap Forward Famine and also the Tangshan earthquake in 1976. The casualties are 87, more than 87,000 people, and affected a population of 46 million people. So it was, it was a huge thing. And these uh, numbers are certainly very striking, but let me show you some pictures about the, you know, the devastations and human suffering on the ground. This is a picture of the epicenter town called Yingxiu in Wenchuan County. So this is a Xuanguozhongxue, a high school in, in actually middle school in Yingxiu. Uh, this is Inchu Primary School, which collapsed immediately after the earthquake. You can see that actually the whole building collapsed into pieces after the earthquake. And this one is particularly heart-wrenching. Uh, it was taken by uh, Reuters, uh, one of the journalists from Reuters. So those kids were actually suff suffocating to death under the rubble. It's in Xinjiang Primary School in Dujiangyan. A father was grieving and over his son's body, which is in Dongqi High School in Mianyang, I mean Mianzhu, um, a town called Hanwang. So all these chaos and tragedies made the earthquake not only a natural disaster, but also a political and a social drama, which uh, can, or has, has already caught attention from all over the world back then in 2008, and still has an influence on our thinking about disasters. So I only pick one of them, one of the episodes of this drama, which is civic engagement, which is defined as uh, activities in which participants are coordinating action to improve some aspect of a common life in society as they imagine society. So the book covers four episodes in the civic engagement. The first one is volunteering in the emergency period. People uh, went to Sichuan or in their own places uh, help the relief and rescue effort. And the second uh, episode is the advocacy for an unprecedented national mourning for the disaster victims, which was uh, the first time in the history of People's <laughs> Republic of China that the state held a state funeral or mourning ritual for uh, ordinary disaster victims. And third episode is in the recovery period in which uh, people still are engaging in the um, all kinds of assistance programs, but the room for the civic engagement is shrinking dramatically. 
And the fourth episode is the activism that some of the activists have started. For example, we probably recognize the face here, Ai Weiwei and Tan Zhuoren and Ai Xiaoming, who are prominent activists in China, who collected students' names and seeking the truth about the school collapse issue. Why did the sc so many sp schools actually collapse? And why did so many students die in their own schools? So these are the four episodes I um, covered in the book. And the most important thing about this is to think about people's compassion. You probably say, well, it's not surprising because, you know, after all disasters, we have all these kinds of activities which we can, which we can call civic engagement. And uh, you will say, like, well, disasters bring out the best in humans, right? And it's kind of a natural outpouring of people's compassion and sympathy. And you are certainly not the only one who thinks in this way. And the uh, Chinese ancient philosopher uh, Mengzi said, everybody has interesting, which means that instinctive um, sympathy for other people's suffering. And also this gentleman, uh, Adam Smith, in his 1759 classic, which is the theory of moral sentiments, says that, well, we do have this moral um, instinct in our, in, in, intrinsic to us. And he, interestingly, he used a case, which is an imaginary case of a Chinese earthquake, which swallowed up the whole empire of China. And his point is that, well, even the, the earthquake happened so far away from Europe, from us, we still have the sympathy for those people who are suffering there, who died there. So that's actually a moral instinct for us. So that's kind of, a, some of you probably in humanities know that uh, there's discussion about distant suffering and so on and so forth. That was the, um, the origin of the uh, dis distant suffering and all these topics uh, in today's discussion. Um, but I would say, well, we need this kind of idea, need qualifications. Certainly compassion and sympathy are universal feelings and emotions and moral instincts. But uh, sympathy and uh, compassion are one thing. Public expressions and actions that express those sympathy and compassion is another. So compassion needs social and political conditions to become public actions. And this kind of civic engagement did not happen in previous disasters in the history of the People's Republic of China. For example, in 1976, you certainly have people volunteered, uh, but they were organized by the state, by their Wei. And also, the, uh, there was no civil society, or civi the term civic engagement didn't exist then. And the scale of the volunteering cannot be compared to the Sichuan earthquake volunteering. After 1998, uh, when there was a huge flood in the Yangtze River area, uh, which was also another big um, a disaster in history, there was no, basically no volunteering back then. And even in the same year, 2008, in January and February, there was a snowstorm hit the southern part of China, particularly Guangdong, and made a lot of trouble for people who went home uh, during the spring festival. And uh, there was very small scale volunteering in some local places. So volunteering and civic engagement are not, are not just uh, natural outpouring of people's compassion. It needs uh, social conditions to turn into such a big scale social actions. And also think about the Chinese politics. We all know that there's a principle called big number, right? Uh, in other words, um, any activity, even if it is apolitical for whatever purposes, if it involves a lot of people in, in this activity, 
and then you, it could turn into a very political um, uh, event for the Chinese government because it could go out of control and have some unintended consequences and so on and so forth. If you count the numbers of the, and the number of the volunteers, they're in millions and flooded into Sichuan pretty much at the same time and also collected donations in other places. So it became the largest collector action since the Tiananmen incident in 1989. It could make the Chinese government very nervous. And at the same time, the structural base for uh, the civic engagement is the civil society. We all know that the authoritarian state has a very strained relationship with the civil society. So how could that happen? It's, it's one of the questions that I ask. So in other words, uh, this kind of a large scale civic engagement is not something to be taken for granted, it's something to be explained. So I ask several questions in this book. Uh, the first one is, uh, why was there such a large scale grassroots civic engagement after the Sichuan earthquake, but not in previous disasters? And the second is, how did different types of civic uh, citizens engage? How did they interact with the different levels and the sectors of the Chinese state? And third is, against the backdrop of human suffering after the earthquake, how did the civically engaged citizens understand and interpret the meaning of their actions, deal with the moral political dilemmas they encountered, and take or not take actions to address the suffering they witness? So these questions are uh, intended to uh, dialogue with the literature on civil society in China. So there being two um, very broad uh, approaches. One is the New Tocquevillian normative literature on civil society. So civil society is kind of a normative idea to uh, create an independent sphere uh, which is uh, different from the state and separated from the state and civil society carries the hope of democratization or culture of democracy and so on and so forth. It's, it, this is a very uh, normative uh, approach. And the second approach is more recent um, people begin to think of civil society as a descriptive term instead of a normative term. And this approach I term as uh, complex coexistence, which means that the scholars stress complexity variations and the contingencies in the civil society's uh, relationship with, with the state. So this actually can be uh, represented, this kind of a complexity can be represented in the terms they use. For example, they are all oxymorons, you know, dependent autonomy and contingent symbiosis and a consultative authoritarianism. Actually, two of the terms were invented by Pippers. Um, yeah, Anthony Spires, yeah. contingent symbiosis, and Jessica Teeth for consultative uh, um, authoritarianism. So in the tradition of uh, national committee. So, we, um, so I follow this tradition. Um, um, I agree with the complex coexistence approach, but I uh, took a slightly different uh, perspective, which is cultural sociology. So I switched my focus from organizational relations to actions. In other words, how people act on the ground. And at the same time, expand my scope from the formal NGOs and associations and uh, the usual focus of our studies to very grassroots group, groups and very small associations, even individual volunteers, and so on and so forth. And so this is one of the things I do in this book. And the second is I focus on their action and their interpretation of the meanings of their actions 
and the context that shape their actions and meanings. So at the core of this approach is actually the meaning. So this is what cultural sociology is about. It's about the meaning, how people interpret the meaning of their actions. So why meaning is important? Think about volunteering and civ civic engagement. It's intended to improve some aspect of the society, the public good, or the whole society as whole. Uh, certainly you have like a high school students, uh, you need hours of volunteering to get into college or you uh, volunteering put on a CV to get to be eligible for a job, that kind of a utilizing uh, volunteering for um, practical purposes. But the original meaning of volunteering and civic engagement is about meaning to improve some aspect of a uh, civic in, uh, society. And particularly in this case of Sichuan, uh, you have volunteers traveled all the way from other parts of China to Sichuan right after the earthquake. It, it is very costly. It could be very dangerous. At the time, you need to look at why they're doing this, how they interpret the meanings of their actions in that dire situation. So meaning is at the center of uh, civic engagement. Also, if we revisit uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, we find that Tocqueville already talked about it. It just scholars ignore the meaning in our civil society liberation. This passage is very familiar to many of you. So Tocqueville says that, well, in civic associations, feelings and ideas are renewed, the heart enlarged, and the understanding developed only by the reciprocal action of men one upon another. So this is a quite a famous statement of the habits of the heart, which all, we all know that is very famous. But in the sociology of, or at least the, um, the uh, civil society literature on China, it's basically we all forget about a meaning. So meaning is centered to my inquiry here uh, on the Sichuan earthquake. So uh, this project I started uh, literally uh, in 2009, but before that, in 2008, I went to Sichuan as a volunteer myself, two months after the earthquake. And after, the, after I came back to uh, Northwestern, <laughs> back then I was a graduate student at Northwestern, I decided to do a kind of suicidal uh, move, uh, which is <laughs> to change my dissert dissertation topic from something else to uh, the Sichuan earthquake. Everybody was, was back then was like, uh, you know, are you crazy? <laughs> um, but yeah, there I was, so in the field. In 2009, I went to Sichuan to do my field work. I interviewed people who were involved in the earthquake, and also I observed their um, participating and observed their activities and collected many, many uh, documents and uh, other textual materials about the, um, about the earthquake. And it's been a long term, it's been 10 years. Ten, this year is the 10th anniversary of the earthquake. So the, the book now uh, is very different from my dissertation. I deleted about 50% um, of the dissertation and also <laughs> put a lot of other materials in there and to make something that is very different from the station. But I think that's something I really want to say, and not sure if I say it well, but uh, this is something that I want to present to you. So uh, next, I will give you sort of a chapter by chapter um, overview of the, um, the, the book. So in first uh, substantive chapter, I talk, I try to explain 
why there was a huge uh, emergence of this large-scale civic engagement. So to summarize, uh, other things you can think of is the long-term you know, development of civil society in China at this moment that it actually um, released its power from the civil society and so on and so forth. This is a very natural explanation. The other hand is we need to think of the situation before the earthquake. We all know that in January and February, there was a, a snowstorm. In March, there was a Tibetan uprising, which was a huge challenge to the Chinese state's um, you know, legitimacy and moral image. And in April, there was an Olympic torch relay going on around the world here in the United States, in San Francisco, I believe. So there was a clash between the pro-Tibetan activists and uh, Chinese overseas students. So that was the moment when the Chinese state was losing face, so to speak, and its moral image was in danger. And the state is seeing that, you know, the Beijing Olympics is around the corner. And that was the moment when the Chinese state decided to repair its moral image and to gain trust not only from the domestic people, but also from the international community. And the earthquake happened. Someone in The Economist or some magazine in England says that the earthquake saved the Olympics, which is actually pretty true, that the earthquake uh, provided a perfect crisis. I said it's perfect crisis because that it is a crisis, but it's not a very political crisis. It gave the, um, the state an opportunity to unite the people in China together to fight against the nature. At the same time, to show a human face to this outside world, see we are nice people, we are helping each other, and we are, we are people of solidarity, and we are good people. So it's, it's a good opportunity for the state to show compassion and to show a human face and show its, um, um, its open attitude toward the foreign media, uh, toward the civil society organizations. That, so that was the moment, and it was the pressure from the situation on the Chinese state. And the Chinese state decided to move toward more open attitude. Some of you um, I see from the media, you probably remember that in 2008, that uh, it, it's very, you know, it, it's a temporary open opportunity for um, foreign media journalists to even follow the military, you know, in the in the disaster zone. That, that was the that was the moment. So the state decided to open to the civil society as well. So that's why there was a. Uh, two kinds of uh, factors. One is situational factor, because the earthquake and the situation. Second is long-term civil society development that actually contribute to the emergence of the, the civic engagement. And then I also look at who are actually the, the, the people on the ground. So among my interviewees, uh, two types are quite familiar, so-called civil society actors. One is former NGOs. And the other is Gong Yi civic groups, uh, very small, uh, sort of informal, but their Gong Yi is for more civic, uh, for, for civic values, for uh, public good, and those groups. But other groups are very, you know, trivial. For example, Car Owners Club, and also Supergirl Fan Club. Supergirl is the equivalent to American Idol, so you can imagine what they're talking about, what they do <laughs> daily, so buy lots of records of their star 
and flew to the uh, cities where the concerts were held and uh, all these things. And also I have um, cosmetics clubs. Um, the woman discussed about, I don't know what Jingyue is, still don't know Jingyue is. So the, uh, talking about cosmetics and so on. And, and the marathoners club and the mountaineers club and so on and so forth. All these small groups are usually ignored by uh, civil society scholars in China, but we, we ha have those uh, groups in the literature of general civil society. For example, Robert Putnam's uh, bowling group, right, which is at the local level. Uh, the decline of the civil society is represented in, in the decline of all these groups, the local groups. So there's no reason, there's no reason for us not to include those um, groups in our uh, study of Chinese civil society. And also, I listen to their feelings and ideas, how they uh, interpret the meanings of their actions. So among my interviewees, I have someone who claimed that he is contemporary Leifeng. Uh, he is, you know, as you can imagine, this person is from Mao's uh, home province, um, Hunan. And someone who is following him uh, to making a documentary of this hero. So this is the person and uh, this, I have also have someone who claimed that I'm doing this to build the Chinese civil society, Gongming so with, with a very ex explicit purpose uh, to uh, construct the Gongming Shehui, the civil society. But I also have a vast majority of the volunteers who believe that this is a moment that the, the Chinese people united together and to fight against the nature, to show that we are the people who deserve the respect from the rest of the world. It's show the solidarity to the world. And also have someone who use Buddhist and Christian values and to interpret their volunteering. And also have someone, the most interesting case is the individualistic uh, interpretation of the, of the meaning of the, the, their volunteering. So this one, called, I call him Shali. Uh, who is a young businessman who just started his company in Chengdu. So he spent all his money, which is 140,000 yuan on donation, and collected more donation, and delivered all the materials to the, to the disaster zone. So Shaoli was a member of the so-called Ho uh, generation, after 80s generation. The public image of this generation is basically, they are the me-center people, right? It's always a me, me, me. Yeah, it's actually true. And he never uses, well, it's actually true in his case. He never uses the phrase like, uh, we Chinese people or we Chinese nation. That actually is not in his interview, in his words. He always said, well, I, made, I do this because it made me happy, uh, particularly when I feel I, I'm so respected by the people in the disaster zone. I feel so, so satisfied. So it's about my, me. And I reminded him that, well, you spend a lot of money on that. You lose a lot of money on that. And he said, quote, I quote here, yes, I spent around uh, 100,000 uh, 100, yuan, but I collected relief materials worth more than 300,000. From an economic perspective, I made a fortune. Although the materials did not end up in my hands, it was more than 100% profit. I believe any businessman who can make this kind of, that kind of a profit will be considered successful. It's a game, it's me, it's successful me is doing something that it actually satisfies myself. So it's about me-centered uh, interpretation of the, uh, disa of the disaster volunteering. And uh, um, the second chapter is about the national mourning. So just, just real quick, <laughs> the, uh, the national mourning, uh, 
some of you probably take it for granted um, because, you know, after all kinds of disasters, people around the world usually have morning rituals. But it was the first time in Chinese history that the state actually had a, a morning for ordinary citizens. And previous, uh, previous state funerals were all for leaders, such as Mao's funeral in 1976 and Huiabang's funeral in 1989. Certainly the two rituals led to different outcomes. Um, and this time, um, the difference between the Sichuan earthquake morning and the state funerals in the past is about for whom the bell tolls. It's about the object, the sacred object of the ritual. This time is the ordinary citizens. And it shows that every individual's lives uh, deserve the respect from the state, from the rest of the society. This kind of idea is f sounds familiar to us, right? In all kinds of commemorations, we read everyone's names, and we show that everybody, whoever this person is, deserves our respect from the, you know, uh, deserves our commemoration and our mourning. And not surprisingly, this idea was cherished by some uh, liberal intellectuals and the liberal media in, in China. They advocated for that, and the state accepted for situational reasons, which I mentioned earlier, that is the, uh, the moral image. And also, it's, it's, it's not a very costly uh, move for the state. It's just one small gesture, but it was extremely successful. This was the only time I heard, and I, I remember in Chinese, recent Chinese history, that the Chinese state was praised by people across the political spectrum. That was the only time. Uh, so it's, so the, the idea is basically about for whom the Beltos. And I also talked to the people on the ground to look at how they uh, interpret the meanings of the, um, the commemoration. So we see the same multivocal meaning in those rituals. You have message cards uh, with China, um, you know, stay strong China, this kind of message on the message cards. But also you have message cards for, actually it's the uh, cover of my book is Mother for the Children who died in the earthquake. It's more than a familial um, emotional expression. And also you have those people uh, who are in small groups believe that this is a way to get away from the state and to do our own things uh, in the square, not to following the Danwei's official memorial, official commemoration, just went to the public space and so on and so forth. So, so again, it's a very diverse uh, uh, expressions of meanings. And the third chapter covers the recovery period. Um, so the things are changing. And the biggest move, is, two biggest moves for the state, one is the state actually formed alliance with big corporations. The local governments wanted money and to recover the economy, so they welcomed big corporations, and uh, um, particularly real estate developers. Uh, for obvious reasons. You need to rebuild all these things. And, uh, and the second move is the state's priority has been shift, shifted from the um, saving people's lives and to recover the economy and also to maintain the social stability. And we all know that in political vocabulary in China, maintain social stability means that suppressing the, you know, the, um, uh, some of the voices. On this issue, uh, the school collapse became the hot bat, um, button issue uh, uh, after the earthquake in the uh, recovery period. This picture was taken by a journalist, and uh, it's a Fuxing Arxia, I believe, in the Mianzhu uh, County. 
So we basically, we, uh, I assume everybody knows what happened, right? So the school, uh, children died in their schools. And the, how many students died? The official number is 5,335 students, which was suspected to be lower than the actual number of student casualties. But even this number was beyond our imagination. Think about this number again, 5,335 students, which is a huge number in a single earthquake. In minutes, even in seconds, so many students died. And people began to ask, what happened? Why so, did so many schools collapse? and what's behind us. So uh, if you want to know the reasons, we, we actually don't know, but there's a very good uh, investigative uh, report by Cai Jing, which is one of the most popular magazines in China. Um, I think it's in June 2008 about the causes. So it's all about funding. So the funding was appropriated. There, were, uh, there was uh, corruption involved in the uh, contracting process. But appropriation is more complex than we thought because the money was appropriated for, um, the, for the purpose of giving uh, teachers more salaries. So you have two things. One is to build a strong buildings. Second is to give teachers more salaries. And this, the teachers there were underpaid. So that was the complexity at the local level. And also it involved the Zhou Yongkang and so-called Sichuan Gan and so on and so forth. That's another, another story, uh, which we can go on forever. <laughs> but uh, the, the point here is that the, when the school collapse issue became a, the biggest problem for the social stability, and the state began to suppress uh, those protests and uh, uh, petitions. And in addition, the state began to rebuild some of the places, reshape the topography of the disaster sites, and uh, build some memorials. This is one of the memorials, the Beichuan um, earthquake memorial. The site was interesting, uh, interestingly sad, I would say. It was right on the site of a Beichuan high school. If you follow the news of the Sichuan, high, uh, Sichuan earthquake, Beichuan High School was the most tragic high school in the whole earthquake. And how many students died in a single school? No one knows for sure, but my estimate is more than 1,000 students, and they died in the earthquake in a single school. This is what it looked like after the earthquake, Beichuan High School. And then the rubble uh, was removed or covered by the grassy mound, and if you walked into the museum, you have a panel like this. The Chinese reads here, the safest place is the school. And with children with a smiling face, and uh, brand new track and field, and this is a kind of a very upbeat image of the earthquake. And in addition, you have a heroic images of how the states uh, respond to that. And also, um, as we all know that uh, Weiwei's story and Tanjuren story now becomes famous. I assume the audience here is very familiar, so I don't spend much time on that. So one thing I want to um, on the, uh, highlight is Weiwei and Tanjuren link the issue of school claps uh, to people's rights to know and to be, uh, to be known. To know the fact, to be known if the person is dead, to be known by outside, and the, cause of the causes of the death is to be known by outside. So that's the one of the things I want to highlight. I'll skip this. Uh, um, and, but you wanna probably want to ask that, what do people, not just Ai Weiwei or Tan and those active 
who are actually pioneering the activism. The ordinary people who went to Sichuan, think about this. This is actually a big part of my book. Um, so I ask people, and I first ask the formal NGOs and the staff members and the formal NGOs. The message is clear. Don't think about it or don't talk about it. You can think about it, but don't talk about it. And the direction from the staff, uh, from the NGO director to their employees is basically like, don't make trouble, don't increase pressure, and to be a good assistant to the government if you want to stay in the disaster zone. Some of the NGOs even signed contracts or agreements with the local government to say like, we won't do anything that hurt the social stability and we will um, you know, contribute to the uh, reconstruction recovery of the, of the community and so on and so forth. And what about those people who are ordinary volunteers who are not involved in any of the NGOs or marginally involved in N NGOs? So this is one uh, interview who's, who actually went to the Fuxing uh, town uh, where I showed a picture of the uh, uh, parents' uh, petition. And he took the pictures of parents' petitions and protests right after the earthquake. So I asked him, did you actually you know, upload the images to online forums? Um, he said, no. I asked why, and he said that, well, I didn't present all the truth because the two words, truth, 真实, are not something that everyone can accept, so I can only present them in a limited and appropriate way. And I asked him that, well, you certainly have some emotional stress and so on and so forth, and not talking about the issue. And he said, yes, uh, that's certainly the case. I had nightmares, sometimes feel guilty, but we have a group, so we have, we have group chats and kind of a therapy-like method and to talk away those negative feelings. So that's it, that's the end of the, end of the story. And also we uh, have uh, this person again who, uh, who, who compare uh, the Sichuan uh, earthquake to, um, oh, I didn't cover that. Uh, that. So this person, let me give you a little background, who, who actually went to Tiananmen in 1989, one of the student protests, protesters, and he compared Tiananmen um, with a uh, Sichuan earthquake and say the, everything is like similar and is, there's a harmonious atmosphere after the incident and so on and so forth. So he, he was a very kind person. He donated a lot of money and, and much time and accommodating outside volunteers. He's a businessman in, in Chengdu, owns a hotel and nightclub. Unfortunately, he didn't invite me to his nightclub, <laughs> so, based, so we, we uh, had an uh, interview in, in a hotel. But he said, I asked him about the school clubs issue, and he said, well, so he was like this. Well, this issue uh, is like, uh, so this is what he said. So now China is at the so-called primary stage of socialism or capitalism without welfare, the most primitive and brutal way. In this situation, everyone makes some money for themselves. In other words, if one could get through inspection, nobody would strengthen the construction. Even the affected people think in that way. So it is quite normal that in order to save money and to make more money, people do such things at, a sta at this stage of development in China. In other words, it's more like a normalization of the evil, normalization of the ugly reality. This is an ugly reality. I chose to accept it. That's it. So whether you can cross the boundary to address the causes of the suffering. No, it's not my business. And 
remind you that uh, <laughs> you know if you want to if you own a nightclub in 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 China, you need to have a really good guanxi with the public security. <laughs> so that that's the one of the reasons. Um, so to conclude. <laughs> Um, so I have several uh, take-home messages uh, for you, uh, which I uh, conclude in several phrases. One is the uh, politics of compassion, which means that civic engagement is shaped by political context. And the uh, people's expression of compassion is kind of a social and a political action, is always shaped by the civil society's relations with the authoritarian state in the, China, in, in the case of China. And this relations is not just the organizational structural relations, but also is about meaning, about cultural relations, and understanding of what, what should be a good society is about. And also how the civil, civil society actors frame their actions. For example, if you want to set up a center for disabled people in China, you can choose two ways to talk about your center. One is, I want to do gongyi, right? Public welfare, I want to help the society and to do social service is fine. And the second way is to say like, I want to construct a civil society, and then good luck. Because is one of the seven don'ts, right? And one of the sensitive political terms in China. So your relationship with the state sometimes depends on how you use the words and the vocabularies and the phrase and to talk about meaning of your actions. And the second, uh, second phrase is moral ecology which I borrow from Richard Madison, who is a veteran uh, China expert. Many of you know him. So he basically says that the vocabularies and ideas and, and the cultural terms people use to describe civil society are shaped by their context, not necessarily this, the same as our classical understanding of a civil society. For example, foreign media always focus on and Tanjuren and international NGOs and local NGOs and organizations, while do, do not think about uh, or do not pay much attention to ordinary uh, citizens' understanding of their meanings. As I have shown in this book, that their meanings are very diverse from nationalism to religion to individualism and to civil society, certainly, to animalism. So you have a huge range of meanings uh, people are using to uh, describe their civic engagement. And the third phrase I use to, dis uh, to um, conclude my book is the compassion with apathy. This might be the most controversial one. <laughs> um, the, I, I argued that the biggest irony of the uh, Sitar earthquake civic engagement is the coexistence of compassion and apathy. On the one hand, we see people are showing compassion through their actions and the words. At the same time, we find people that are not reluctant to cross the boundary to address the causes of the compassion, uh, causes of the suffering. So here we have a classical ethical and political dilemma here, which is not just about China, which is everywhere. Uh, you know, Jane Adams' um, uh, type of volunteering, which addresses causes of people's suffering and to do something to address the social and political causes. Or you can stay in the comfort zone of warm volunteering to be a nice person and to help people and to reduce their suffering without addressing the causes of the suffering. And it's it's something that we always uh, we always face in our on a daily basis, um, but the Sichuan earthquake is a very particular context, which 
uh, in which there there's uh, lots lots of emotions um, going on, which highlight the uh, many many moral issues like life and death and people suffering, seeing so many children. Uh, in the uh, died in the earthquake. Think about you are a volunteer. You went to Sichuan and you taught at a tent school and taught a summer school, which is good. You're a nice person, but not very far from your tent school, there's a pile of rubble, which is a school building, and still a hundred something students but buried under the rubble forever. And you pass this rubble every day and to your tent school to teach the children. And do you feel anything? Of course. What, what do you want to do? I don't know. So this is why people avoid talking about politics. And in their action, they, they show the, some degree of apathy. So this is a coexistence of the um, compassion and apathy. I'm not blaming the individuals. Actually, I, I'm trying to say that the political context shapes the uh, coexistence of apathy and compassion. And because in a rep repressive context, your cost of saying aloud, or talking about issues, and which cause people suffering is very high. The higher the cost of talking aloud, uh, talking about issues, uh, the more dangerous you are, and the less likely you're gonna speak out about the problem. And the less likely you're talking about the problem, and uh, the, 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 end, um, uh, the result is that you're not talking about the problem at all. There was a silence. This is what we call the spirit of silence, the context, and then people's behavior, which are reinforcing each other. So this is why I call this the coexistence of compassion and apathy. And uh, I skipped the talk about power. So this is actually a pretty important part. It's not just the uh, ritualistic uh, dedication to those children. I started this book when my daughter was seven years old. And uh, many of the children in Sichuan are at her age. So this is basically a book for my daughter, or for the children at my daughter's age. And I was a volunteer. So this coexistence of compassion and apathy is still in my, uh, in my heart. And I feel the same ethical and political dilemma still now. And certainly I have the privilege of being a writer, being an academic, I can say something. I can talk about the causes of the issue, I can describe it, but many people do not have this opportunity or in, in the, still in a context which actually, you know, um, prevent them from talking about the issue. So this book is dedicated to those children who died in this situation of earthquake and also to those parents who are still suffering from their loss. Thank you very much. up for questions. I'm sure you all have a lot, but, but I'd just like to ask you to begin. So you've talked about the fact that you went as a volunteer. Had you ever done any volunteering before that? Nope. <laughs> and so what caused you to do it? And what did your wife and daughter say? Or did they go with you? Um, I think I my case is very similar for most volunteers um, in after the Sichuan earthquake, they have never done anything that so spontaneously uh, 
so spontaneous for them. Probably they participated in those activities in their schools, you know, <laughs> learning from the activists, if you can call that volunteering, but it was organized by the, right. by the school and by, by, by the state. That. Yeah, we don't count that, okay. So <laughs> if you don't count that, uh, many people like, like me went to Sichuan for the first time, flew all the way from places so far from Sichuan. It was very costly and could be dangerous, and it was certainly a very tough situation there. You don't, you know, you have no uh, running water and things like that, so you can imagine that uh, not taking, ba uh, you know, a shower for seven days, eight days you know, in that situation. And also, the most important thing is the emotional toll on you. Uh, so that was both my motivation when I saw the pictures I show in the beginning of the presentation, and also the outcome of my volunteering, that is the emotional outcome. As for my uh, daughter, my daughter was back then very, very uh, young, so she didn't know anything about it. So <laughs> um, my wife certainly supported. Uh, it, was, it was a very brief uh, volunteering, not very heroic, and just you know, teaching kids in tent school, which I described that then. So that was my experience in Dujiang Yan. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah, Du Yes. All right, Bill, start and introduce yourself, sure. please. I'm Bill Ironbruster, retired journalist. Um, what's your estimate of the actual number of children who died? You said the official estimate is 5,335, but I, uh, from what I've read, I had the impression that it was many times that, that official. The I actually don't have an estimate for that because I don't have data. So I'm a social scientist. Without data, I don't do that kind of estimate. But Ai Weiwei and Tan Zhuoren have their figures, which are similar, surprisingly, right? Similar to the 5,335, yeah. And, um, but they all say that, well, because we don't have the access to the schools. Their volunteers were expelled by the local governments and even sometimes interrogated. And so they don't have access to some of the most tragic places. And their data is incomplete. Um, so right now, the only, the only number we can use is the official number, which is already very, very surprising and very tragic number now. Yeah. So I'm Sewell Chan, I'm a journalist. Um, could you tell us about whether the What's the history of disaster response in China? Was there any organized disaster response during the late imperial and republican periods? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, we have historian, um, uh, maybe um, disaster, his disaster history is now a booming subfield in contemporary, uh, in modern Chinese history, particularly in uh, late Qing period, and also in the Mingguo, on uh, the nationalist, um, uh, the Republic of China period. So um, from what I read, um, th there are some studies about the foreign uh, associations' involvement in disaster relief, so like a Huayang Yi Hui. I don't know how to translate that, but anyway. So, uh, so the foreign uh, associations and also some of the associations at the local level, like a Shanghui uh, Chamber of Commerce, and also like Tongxiang uh, Hui, such as like Huangdong Hui Guan, and and those uh, uh, involvement in the disaster uh, response, and. Um, 
If you want to know the sincere journalists, you probably should contact uh, scholars at the Renmin University in China. They have disaster history, and also a few English books um, just published in recent one or two years are very good about uh, disaster, and also involves some of the cultural meanings, such as the uh, mandate of heaven and the state's ritualistic uh, uh, the uh, performance of uh, sympathy uh, toward people and blame themselves for the disasters which actually cause problems uh, for, for the people. I have a, an article in China Quarterly which is about a state part, which was the part I deleted from a dissertation, and from the, not in the book but published in the China Quarterly, about the state's moral performance. So I compare um, the post Tangshan uh, performance to post Sichuan performance. Uh, the significant change is basically the scene change. If we see performance as something in a setting, the so setting changes. Because back then in Tangshan, the devastation and human suffering are not allowed to be reported. So people don't know what actually going, was going on in Tangshan until rumors you know, are spread. Um, but now in, in Sichuan, uh, you have all these uh, very unusual uh, reporting activities going on, foreign media and the liberal media and the state media, Xinhua News, some of the pictures are taken by Xinhua News, and created a very emotive um, scene for uh, the state performance. This is why Wen Jiabao's tears are so successful back then. It was not about Wen Jiabao, it's about the background, the scene, uh, which was unusual in the disaster response. Yeah. yeah. You want to take the questions? Hi. Um, Hi. I work in the um, investment sector. So I remember uh, Wen Jiabao went to one of the school and wrote this, you know, Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, on the blackboard, which means you know uh, disasters uh, lead to the prosperity yep. of That's the true. So I wonder, you know, how different group are receptive of, of this you know notion. And I mean, to me, is all this uh, disaster is huge loss to yep. to family and, and mm -hmm. individual and and how how you know and that leads to the state's prosperity. You know, how how do we reconcile? Uh, individualism and, and That's a very state. good question. Yeah, on the blackboard, you know, and later that piece of blackboard was cut off and put in the museum. <laughs> so that was the story of this thing. The reception um, are pretty expected. So for those dissidents and liberal intellectuals, they will think of this is just nonsense. You know, um, there's no causal relationship between the adversities and then the revival of the uh, nation. Right? There's no causal relationship. So that's the reception uh, from the liberal intellectuals, dissidents. Um, most people don't think much about this phrase, I would say. They take it for granted um, because they think this is just a phrase to encourage people that to step out of the, this disaster to build a better, better future. And I'm writing another article now. It's it's about resilience. So resilience is not just a Chinese thing. It's a kind of a modernity, linear, progressive um, view of the past and the future. The past has been so horrible, and then we conquer the past, overcome the past, and to build the future. And materially, we can you know the disaster has helped us you know wiped out everything 
is a clear ground. In Mao's terms, you know, we have a you know blank sheet, so we can be, we can draw the most beautiful uh, pictures. That kind of uh, you know mentality was represented in some of the slogans after the Sichuan earthquake, particularly from the government um, discourses like Sichuan because of the disaster. So it's it's like you know we are we have the resilience and to build our. Uh, better future, and we have lots of money invested, and we have corporations, we have government spending, and so on and so forth. But what about the past suffering? No one mentions that. So in the museum, I mentioned there's a, you know, the safest place at the school, that museum. If you walk in that, it's all this kind of uh, uh, narrative pattern that past has been overcome, and the uh, government's response to the disaster was effective. And then we have a better future, better school buildings, um, better highways, and uh, we have tourist spots. Ironically, Inshu now it becomes, uh, you know, one of the tourist spots. I have a friend who, uh, Christian Sorachi, uh, wrote another book on Sichuan earthquake, which is called Shaking Authority. And he has very wonderful descriptions about, you know, those places uh, becoming, you know, tourist spots. And the suffering were covered. I myself has another paper on it as well. So. This kind of a resilience um, idea is everywhere, and the reception where varies. Yes. Uh, Rebecca Small, I teach at NYU uh, History. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit. I mean, if I could uh, open up this question that Sewell asked as well about uh, the the class basis of volunteering. I mean, you have obviously you have disposable income. Yep. You now have time to right. get away from your job. I mean, these are all sort of markers of middle class mm -hmm. or a certain kind of class basis. Uh, and it's part of the self-fashioning of a middle class, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, even the story you tell, there's a heroicism to having to, you know, endure these bad conditions, you know, and, and then you can go back to your nice running water and yep. your mm. sit-down toilet yep. and your, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and your nice bathroom and all the rest, right, in wherever. Uh, so that, I wonder if you could, I mean, and that's what would make it really different from Tangshan, or really different from a, a malware disaster, for example, because you don't have those that kind of class fashioning, you don't have that kind of class formation, you don't have that kind of but that's what makes it somewhat similar to some of the discourses on disaster um, stuff in the in the Republican period, where you had yep. also the beginnings of a middle class or a, or a, or a you know or an urban petty bourgeoisie, whatever you yep. want to call it, right? So I wonder if you can talk about it in the in in that in terms of a structural a social structural change. Good. Yeah. Thank you. That's a very good question. So yeah, a class certainly matters. Um, as you well, the Mingguo um, and late Qing period certainly you have this upper middle class people, right, and with the foreigners, and also among my interviewees, a significant number of them are middle class people. Certainly, not surprising. But also among my interviewees, I thought about this problem when I was doing interview. But many many volunteers are are college students who have no money, or college graduates who just started their jobs. Um, some of them quit their jobs. And, uh, and also have someone like, uh, you know, uh, who's um, basically a primary school teacher who has 
not a lot of money. It's more like uh, you know, very underpaid in those places. So uh, they travel not by air, but by train. Not by air-conditioned train, but those Lüpi火车, you know, the uh, the green, the green ones without air conditioning and with. Uh, with the zuo piao, you know, this the sitting for, I have a group of uh, uh, volunteers who are actually the main characters in my story. I still have contact. Um, most of them travel by trains and sitting or standing in a train for 18 to 14 to 18 hours from uh, all over the country, and then uh, met at uh, in front of the Red Cross, and the Red Cross actually didn't call them back, so they decided to organize themselves uh, into a random group, which is a volunteer group, and these people I don't know later probably become uh, middle class, but uh, at the time, they, some of them were jobless. Uh, some of them had very low-paid jobs, uh, but uh, I don't see a very strong correlation between class and uh, and volunteering. Even as an imaginary. As even as an imaginary. Really. Yeah. So. Uh, for example, this guy claimed he's a contemporary lay phone. He was jobless. He was a local peasant in Hunan. Um, so he biked <laughs> from Hunan to, uh, to Sichuan. So that's why his deeds are so heroic that uh, you know, the local Hunan people send a, uh, send a team and to make a documentary about it. So, so that's the... Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm fascinated by that uh, question. And Chris, answer. introduce you. Oh, sorry, I'm Chris Clark. I work at the EEOC. Mm -hmm. um, EEOC, something. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Okay. Um, the training um, The even though it's not about class, it seems the end of the starvation mentality in China, and that's the marker. Mm -hmm. like, now that people are no longer starving, or a generation or two has that era, mm -hmm. now they have space within their minds to do, to give something. And that was decisively different than before. Like in, Mar in, the, in the history of modern China, okay. or, or the Chinese communist sort of you know, rule, that, that, was, that was interesting to watch on television, okay. to see that for the first time. Yeah, but individually, those people do not have the memory of the, uh, of the, uh, the, the greatly forward famine. Um, many of them are younger. The oldest one I interview are uh, 55 at the time, so you can see, you know, didn't actually experience in the uh, in the most tragic. And many of them were like a 30-something, born after the Great Leap Forward famine. And as a collective memory, <laughs> I can say that the Great Leap Forward famine was forgotten in 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 media. It was rephrased, euphemized as the three years of a natural disaster. So uh, many of the things are not really um, uh, played out in the public discourses. Although you can f uh, find the causal relationship between the policy adjustment, um, uh, between the famine and policy adjustment at the local level in places like Anhui Fengyang. Yang Dadi has a book on that. Um, so, but it was at basically at the local level, while in the public discourses, the starvations back then were way to the very deep background, which did not have much effect on the, uh, much effect on the people's actions today. Yes, Angela. Angela, I'm an anthropologist, mostly. Um, <laughs> I was curious, um, 
because you said meaning is at the center of this. So, so from your field work and even from yourself, how what were some of the expressions of the meaning? I'm sorry. Can I say that again? Expressions of the meaning. Oh, okay. What did people tell you. Did you ever ask or hear them talking about it? Or? I do ask why you're doing this, or how do you view your, yeah, yeah. and I also observe there. Um, uh, yeah, for example, the apathy thing, um, so I participated in the groups, and so sometimes I try to do a sort of a experiment <laughs> to raise the um, issue of the school claps, and people became a little bit uncomfortable, um, and then switch topic. Uh, in there. them why they came? Yeah. I did. And, and their answer? And their, their answers varied in those um, uh, which I already presented. And also, some of the meanings are not really the answers to my questions yeah. in their narratives. Yeah. So people would say, like, uh, you know, I, I encounter, there's one person who is a Buddhist and who actually bumped into a person who lost his family and his friends in the earthquake zone. And then he still continued to do volunteering for others. So she said that, the person I interviewed, she said that uh, I was deeply moved because now in today's society, the, there's moral degradation and things like that. And so these are the parts in the narratives which are not direct answers to my questions, but show the meaning and the patterns of the meanings uh, in the uh, interviews. So my interviews are not like, you know, I have a list of questions, you know, <laughs> it's not like that. So it's basically to listen to their stories, and sometimes I intervene in the, you know, their narrative flow, and trying to find the places where they do not say the word meaning or whatever uh, reason, but to figure out what they, what, how they understand and how they interpret th their meanings. Yeah. Have, uh, oh, maybe that gentleman, yeah, because you have already asked it before, yeah. So I'm, I'm sitting Introduce here. Yourself. I'm John Lowe and I'm with the National Committee. Hmm. Uh, and and the, depending on how one thinks about it, the son or grandson of Holocaust survivors. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm accustomed to the notion of a generation not talking about very difficult things wow. and segmenting their, mm -hmm. their mind. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, I, so I'm trying to figure out kind of what the, what is the, the what happens with that over time, and I've, I've, I guess I've kind of seen it in an American context, but I'm, I'm wondering about, I mean, what you describe as kind of compassion with apathy, or what I think of as cognitive dissonance. Uh -huh. What is the, how does that play out? What are the longer term implications for China if, if people cannot address, you know, I guess publicly, the causes of the suffering. That's a million-dollar question. Yeah. What's the literature? Well, um, the the things since it's been ten years. So, the things I've been observing is one thing is. Um, the booming volunteering. So volunteering now is becoming a fashion, particularly among younger generations. Um, so it's gongyi or something like that, or all kinds of a very 
fancy. <laughs> I, I, I actually don't know some of the things, but uh, you know, it's, it's becoming fashion. So it's hard to make a judgment on that to say like people are more cold-hearted. Uh, that, that's unfair. So we can see this compassion and public expressions are expressed in public discourses and even their, their actions. So this is a good thing, which is you know to improve some of the. And if you look at the number of the donation, so it's it's increasing very quickly in China. At the same time, it seems like there's a war between the compassion, the worn, do nice things compassion, and the more the angrier activism or kind of. Uh, compassion uh, to address the causes of the suffering. There's a war. You keep hitting on that war when you try to cross the boundary between the two kinds of compassion. And this war, in my opinion, and it's set by the political context. It's not just the cognitive dissonance. So if we can look at a cognitive dissonance, yeah, certainly it is there. But it's a more like a universal argument across all the contexts. This is psychology is about. And uh, in sociology, or political science or social scientists, you, we would say, like, uh, in addition to the universal psychological mechanism, we do have the outside, the political and cultural context shaping people's cognitive dissonance, leaning toward uh, a certain direction. That was the case of China today. Uh, for the long-term implication, I would say, although it's more like a general observation of today's Chinese society. It's, it seems like a very prosperous. Uh, it's very it's, it's booming everywhere. You know, you have a very diverse society. But underneath this diversity and multiple and multivocal expressions, you have this dead silence. Dead silence on, on some of the critical issues. And particularly, some of you probably have this feeling if you're from China, when you're talking to the people back still in China, you have this frustration, right? Um, when you talk about some of the issues in China, they were like, why you are so negative about China? <laughs> and why are you, because you are in America or something? So choose not to say anything about those things. And, and also, at the same time, there are nice people. They are doing very good things for the public good and the donation. And we shouldn't call them the cold-hearted people. So. I don't know. Maybe it's the compart. Uh, what's what's the word? Segregated or whatever you want to say. Like compartmentalization of the Chinese society at the bottom of of the moral feelings. I would say. Yeah. Can I say that I think that problem also goes beyond China? That the that the inability of the Chinese people to freely sort of work out its historical memory right. That's leads true. to an international misunderstanding That's of China true. on the world stage. And as a Chinese American who goes back and right. forth, I see the understandings, particularly in America, in terms of how we come at the historical understanding politically in a mm -hmm. way that's often problematic, but it's often not subject to criticism. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to see that as it becomes critically important for us to understand China and World War II, for example. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I'm Margot Landman with the National Committee. I think you mentioned very quickly in your talk, and I know you write about it in the book, mm. but I think John's question also leads to this, or your re response to it. Should we see the civic engagement 
however limited it might be by our standards, as part of a developing culture of democracy, or is it something else entirely? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Well, maybe. And the only only answer I have is maybe, because we do have an ideal type of what culture of democracy uh, looks like. And this ideal type is from Tocqueville, from Robert Putnam, from East European countries, and so on and so forth. When you say we, you mean Americans or uh, We Americans. Okay. Um, Although I don't right. usually know. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but, but anyway, so since we are, are trying to make uh, okay. you know, uh, solidarity among you. Uh, so so uh, anyway, so, uh, so this ideal type, um, if we use this ideal type to look at the reality, that might be a little bit problematic. So I'm not making a prediction where the civic engagement is leading towards, or cultural democracy, or democratization. I don't know. I'm agnostic about it. So I'm describing this uh, situation now, uh, which is more complex than this ideal type uh, of culture of democracy. And also sociologically, um, this again back to uh, Richard Madison's uh, term, which is moral ecology, in the context where the uh, local co contextual factors could shape people's vocabulary and, uh, um, and, and their, their, their expressions of meaning. Whether you say this is a symptom or it's a problem or it's a good thing, it depends on where you stand. Yeah, I, so I have Introduce a, yourself. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Joan Calvin from the Schwartzman Scholars Program. Um, so I, but I have a, my question is really whether it's really a kind of cognitive dissidence or it's just people protecting themselves because they know in the authoritarian right. um, you know, system that they're working in, mm. uh, civil activism, right. or, uh, especially if the government has clearly communicated it's not okay to talk about all the school children who died and attribute it to responsibility or a failing of the government or of anything else. Good. Mm. You know, that there's a, a self-preservation quality that is ingrained by parents to children and over, you know, uh, 50, 60 years of uh, communist authoritarianism about, you know, what, what's okay to, to, you know, have, they, it's compartmentalizing for survival in a way, you know, that in this context, they can give back and, and be good moral people by volunteering yep. and providing public welfare at the same time as knowing very well they're not going to be crossing a line because you know, they'll get in trouble or they'll, you know, it will lead to no, no good for them mm -hmm. in their life, political career, or anything else. So it, I, I think there is a kind of pragmatic yeah, um, I agree. survival mechanism or, you know, conditioning that, you know, it's just, it's just based on the reality of, yeah. of the system. Uh, I think it's both. So the fear of being, you know, being into trouble, getting into trouble, and also the, uh, you know, you know, the political situation, you don't want to talk about it, and this kind of pragmatic uh, attitude, and also the apathy are reinforcing each other. The longer you're in that context, the, this is actually the spirit of silence is about. You know the danger, and you know this is a politically, you know, sensitive topic, you don't want to talk about it. And the, the, so you have the spirit of silence. Later, you lose the ability to talk about it. 
So it's reinforcing each other. And then you tend to rationalize your choice, not to say, I fear of suppression. It's you are the normalize the uh, you know, ugly reality. Well, this is normal. Well, this is something that uh, we cannot do. What I cannot do else. And so it's reinforcing each other. So it's not like uh, cognitive dissonance or the emotional response can be separated from that kind of practical concern. Uh, it's, it's both. It's reinforcing each other. This is a wise spirit of it. smaller family circle yes. really about, like, you know, the more yeah. private environments. Right. There is a sense of outrage yeah. or, or discussion, or, but that it, it surfaces, but just not publicly. Yeah. Know, right? Well, even in small, uh, in local settings, like my conversations with the volunteers, not recorded interviews, so it's in my participant observations, people are less likely to talk about the even among the volunteers who went to Sichuan, saw the things, and saw the school collapse issue, and particularly for those people. Because it is one thing to talk about it online. It is another to talk about it when you actually experience the horrible things, and you can do nothing about it. The emotional stress on you is greater than those people who are distant observers of, of the suffering. So, so you're yeah. saying the people who were involved find it, don't talk about it among themselves. Yes. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Many. Not all, not all right, of them, right, of, course, of course, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, last question, OK. So I'm Curly. I teach at John Jay College. Um, so it seems to me one of your major findings is that people, volunteers, mm -hmm. deliberately avoid politicizing the disaster, especially the, the human aspect of the natural disaster. Mm -hmm. So um, so I imagine nobody will say, I want regime change because yeah. of this. Of course right? not, yeah. Just, but just because people avoid politicization does not necessarily mean they don't invoke the notion of rights. I imagine, right. let me know if this is what you find in your research. Did anyone say, I'm a parent, I deserve to know this? In other words, I have rights. Whether it's civil or political, it doesn't matter. In other words, in, during your interviews, did you hear people invoking the notion of rights a lot, or this barely happened? Um, not many. Only people who identified themselves as the liberal intellectual theopi, like, um, you know, just think they have affinity with people like Ran Mingfei and Ai Weiwei would say, I have the rights. And the rights, the term li actually is not in the narratives of the interviews or the conversations, which I, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's the, um, I don't know. It's, you but your interviews were mostly with the volunteers and people outside. If you'd interviewed the parents or the people directly Certainly. involved, then you they would were, I interviewed that. one parent. I didn't put it in the book because it would be, he was detained for several times. And if I say something about him, maybe, you know. Again, but certainly, right. the, the parents certainly talk about rights. You are the person who are actually suffering right. instead of you are just distant observer or observer. Stand, uh, the, 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 the bystanders uh, who are talking about the issue are, are quite different. And uh, when people, a few of them saw Ai Weiwei and Ai Xiaoming's documentaries, they will make comments online to say, we, have, we deserve the rights to know the truth, right? Uh, but among the volunteers, not many. Yeah. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end. But um, you can learn more about what 
you've been found by buying the book. Um, and I know he'll, he'll be here a little bit longer so that he can autograph them for those of you who do. But please join me in thanking him. For Thank you very much. Thank you.